This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Humor is steeped in belief. How we see the world shapes our jokes, and jokes shape how we see the world. I'm Ben Fort, and I've spent years creating comedy and practicing the Christian faith. These two worlds have different languages, and this miniseries is a place where they can talk. Whether you're a Christian, a comic, or both, let's explore where humor connects to your funny beliefs. Back in September, a sermon went viral. A British pastor was praised for a grace-filled rebuttal to the burdensome false teachings of a fellow clergyman. This kind of interaction isn't surprising to anyone on Christian Twitter, except this debate wasn't about the Trinity or the role of women in the church. The issue was fat shaming, and the denomination was CBS. The pastor's name is James Corden, host of The Late Late Show, His adversary, Bill Maher, has a pulpit on his show, Politically Incorrect. The goal of humor has always been simple. Get a laugh. Accomplish that goal, and you're a good comedian. Awkward silence? Not so much. But Bill Maher wasn't criticized for being a bad comedian. He was a bad priest, using his pulpit to add burden instead of lifting it. And James Corden wasn't praised for being funny, but for bringing relief. David Zoll put it well in the footnotes of his book Seculosity, which is about the religiosity found outside of organized religion. He says, In the church of Seculosity, stand-up comedians and late-night talk show hosts are the preachers. That certainly feels true with the rise of the comedy, or comedy homily, when a comedian pauses the jokes to sincerely address a serious issue. In the wake of national tragedies, we're increasingly retweeting words of comfort from late-night hosts like Corden, Trevor Noah, and Jimmy Kimmel. The peak of the comedy may have been right after the 2016 presidential election when Saturday Night Live opened with a sober lament. Kate McKinnon, dressed as Hillary Clinton, played a piano and unironically sang Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah without any jokes. As someone who performs and teaches at a local comedy theater, this priestly trend raises interesting questions. What is the relief of laughter, and is that enough for a hurting world? Have we been asking too little of comedians, or are we now asking too much? During the first week of the COVID-19 outbreak, I could feel an anxiety attack brewing. These attacks are always an earthquake, and I could feel the early tremors. I felt powerless beneath the weight of the world, the rising numbers, the death toll in Italy, the loss of jobs, and also the weight of being a stay-at-home dad with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, which I've done for years, but never with this little help or places to go. My anxiety attacks always end in heavy crying. It's the physical release my body needs, and I was bracing myself for the inevitability of a breakdown. The tears came on a Thursday evening, 
but not from being overwhelmed at the news or small humans yelling at me. I was watching Stephen Colbert deliver his show's monologue from his front porch. He ended his segment with a comily, which I'm sure was thoughtful and comforting, but my relief had already come. It was his jokes that made me cry. A joyful, uncontrollable giggle fit. At that moment, I didn't need his assurance that everything would be okay. I needed a reminder that I live in a world with the movie Cats, a world where professional animators work hard to edit digital cat butts. I was lamenting the loss of this sensible world, with rules that can be followed and rewarded, and Colbert reminded me that this rational world gave me cats. Afterwards, I wiped my cheeks and said, "Ah, I needed that. I physically felt better and my anxiety tank was less full. The next day was not as hard and I was able to get back to work. The book of Ecclesiastes says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, and on that evening my body could have gone either way. I expected pain, but relief came through the joy of laughter. It was pure grace. When COVID lockdown hit, the content of the internet doubled overnight. We were bombarded with how to work from home, how to homeschool our kids, keep up with friends, stay close to God, keep ourselves busy but not too busy, and how to sew our own masks so we don't die. It was overwhelming. Our existing responsibilities got harder and we had to figure out which new resources were helpful, then read them, and then put them into practice. We've been put into impossible situations with less options and support than ever and keep receiving a message of, hey, you've got this. This existed before lockdown. Christ and Pop Culture's editor-in-chief, Alan Noble, has written about technique, or the use of rational methods to maximize efficiency. In his powerful article on living, he says, The promise of technique is that we are collectively overcoming all the challenges to life through research, technology, and discipline. All you have to do is find the right self-help book or life hack or app or life coach or devotional. He goes on to say that technique's promises become just another source of dread. If life doesn't have to be this hard, if there are answers and methods and practices that can solve my problems, then it's really my fault that I'm overwhelmed or a failure. His words were true last year, but it's easier to see in a lockdown. As long as I believe a technique exists to maintain last year's version of life, I'm headed for a crash. And my crashes look like the ones we see in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. On days when I'm the problem, clearly falling short of all the techniques and the standards, I spiral into a younger brother crash of guilt and shame. When I feel like I'm on top of it, but that my efforts are going unrewarded, I share the older brother's resentment and bitterness. Enter humor. Alongside the corona hustle content, we've been treated to funny memes reminding us that we're all drowning. The ambitious schedules for the new working parent-teacher were updated to include time blocks for Peppa Pig, crying, and our kids crying. We've joked about how slowly time is passing, how terrible we are at doing nothing, and how Chili's is trying to comfort us into buying fajitas. This humor brings relief. 
Our inner older brother is reminded, this situation is absurd and success is impossible. Our inner younger brother is reminded, you're not alone. The relief of humor doesn't come at the top, but at the bottom. It's the relief of remembering that we're all broken people in a broken world. Despite our best intentions, we can't help but make a mess of things. Even in our best efforts, we run up against absurd, random, irrational forces. We have to be reminded of these things again and again, and these lessons typically involve breakdowns, serious articles, and global pandemics. Laughter is gentle, a recalibration that comes through joy. Like everyone else in the pandemic, comedians have felt massive disruptions to our personal and professional lives. Like everyone else, we felt pressure to bring relief. People saying things like, We need art right now. We need to laugh right now. We as comedians are drowning and feel like we need to be a lifeboat. And now we have to try without an essential worker, the live audience. The pandemic versions of Late Night and SNL have been interesting, but off. The performers are still talented and delivering lines by the same professional writers, but you can feel a dip in rhythm and energy. They love and miss their audience. Like many of us, they wouldn't have applied for their current job if they knew it'd be like this. If you're a comedian, you've been put into an impossible situation with impossible expectations. You can't do this, and you're not alone. But even before COVID, the burden was always on you to figure out what relief looks like. I teach comedy writing classes, which are great for certain things, like giving you structure to clarify ideas and a supportive space to develop your voice. Lifting burdens? Not so much. You're given one moral rule, punch up, don't punch down but it's on you to know up from down to begin with. Some attempts at relief look like a comily, and others look like a fire and brimstone sermon. The second approach can actually ramp up our anxiousness by keeping us in a state of threat. In her brilliant book, Irony and Outrage, professor and improviser Dr. Danigal Young says, Humor appreciation requires a willingness to enter a playful mode. If you feel threatened or aggrieved, if your ego is involved, if your empathy is activated, you will be less willing and able to operate in a playful mode. End quote. Fear and play can't coexist. Writing about shifts in comedy under the Trump presidency, Dr. Young writes that left-leaning comics at times have exited the state of play and began adopting some of the tropes of outrage. By adopting alarm and moral seriousness, some comics have looked a lot like the outrage pundits critiqued by Jon Stewart and his disciples. Ironically, this can keep audiences from entering a state of play and experiencing the unique relief of laughter. Even when an audience does laugh, it doesn't necessarily mean relief is happening. It's not cathartic if your coworkers are teasing you in a mean way. It's not cathartic if people are laughing about your gender, race, sexuality, religious beliefs, physical appearance, disability, or accent. And ultimately, it's not relief for those who do the condescending joking and laughing. 
It's a classic older brother move, clinging to a belief that you and your world are fine, and it's those people over there who are making a mess of things. Maybe the laugh feels good, but then you have to keep being normal, keep blaming scapegoats, and keep being better than everyone else. It's exhausting. Ten days after my Colbert catharsis, I finally had my anxiety attack. The relief of comedy was limited and temporary. During lockdown, I've needed daily recalibration, and it's come from comforting words, serious articles, novels, playing with my kids, and every emotion from Pixar's Inside Out. All of that relief is also limited and temporary. For ongoing, comprehensive relief, we need a gracious father who loves us despite our big brother resentment and little brother shame. We need a priest that understands the impossibility of the human situation and has a godlike ability to do something about it. But that doesn't make earthly, lesser relief less good. It was good when Stephen Colbert brought Anderson Cooper to tears talking about suffering. And it was good when he brought me to tears joking about cats. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Each form of relief is its own kind of gift. And when we embrace the limits of each medium, as well as our own limits, we're free to let our jokes be jokes and our sermons be sermons. Writer Sam Anderson wrote about a quasi-religious experience at a comedy event. He says the crowd was rolling in sustained explosions of belonging and joy. We were one crowd, united in isolation, together in a great collective loneliness that, once you recognized it, once you accepted it, felt right on the brink of being healed. This was a Weird Al concert. And the relief didn't come in a sermon between songs, but during the singing of Amish Paradise. Anderson's New York Times profile describes a weird owl who was never cool enough, whose iconic nickname was an insult from his college days. His ridiculous music is a joyful invitation, or as Anderson puts it, a pulse, a signal. And these were the people it drew, the odd, the left out. That sounds like relief to me and good priestly work in a hurting world. Your question of the week, when has humor brought you relief? And on the flip side, when has humor not brought you relief? Like I said, your two questions of the week. Let me know on Twitter at Ben Fort Worth, like my name and my city, and or using the hashtag funny beliefs. If you're listening during the run of the show, I record each episode on a Zoom call Mondays at 8 Central, and afterwards we get to talk about it with each other. If you want in, hit me up on Twitter and I'll send you an invite. We'll also talk about it in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum on Facebook, which I've been part of since 2015. Some of my favorite friends are people I've met in the group, so if you need friends, you can have them for just $5 a month. And as a bonus, you'll support thoughtful writing and podcasts like this one. Funny Beliefs was written and recorded by me, Ben Fort. It was produced by Jonathan Clausen, art by Seth Hani, music by me. I have small children, and this was recorded at Leaves Book and Tea Shop in Fort Worth. Thanks, Tina. 
And thank you, Aaron and Tyler, my CAPC editors who made this happen. And to you for listening. You're pretty cool. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.